Warning! Today's story contains explicit sexual content, including some scenes that people may find disturbing. It's definitely not for children. Escape Pod 126 October 4th, 2007 Today's story, The Sweet, Sad Love Song of Fred and Wilma Hello, and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. I'm back from the Podcast Expo. I had a great time there. To everyone I met, thanks for helping make it a great time. And it only took a couple of days for me to get my voice back afterwards. For some of the people I was with, the con drama might last a little longer. I want to talk about convention drama a bit more. It's a common enough effect in science fiction fandom that I can call it on-topic, but I don't want to give the impression that I'm making light of it. It can be very serious, even life-changing. When you're at a con, most normal life gets put on hold for a while. You're stepping out of your ordinary world and into a microcosm the size of one or more hotels. When you do that with friends, it feels very liberating, and it can be easy to feel like the things that happen aren't really real. It's like the what-happens-in-Vegas-stays-in-Vegas attitude. The problem, of course, is that they are real. There's almost nothing you can do with another person that truly has no consequences. Some wonderful things can happen at a con. I've seen relationships get started, even lead to marriage. I've also seen relationships destroyed, when people lose themselves too much in the moment, or in their drinks, and forget about what's important to them. At the conventions I've hit in the past year, I've seen my share of con drama and had some really interesting things happen to me. I think I've managed not to get into trouble, despite temptations. My own trick is having a particular person as my conscience. If Anna's not actually there with me, and she often is, then it's a foregone conclusion that I'll tell her everything that happens. That's not optional for me. And before I do anything, I ask, is this something I'd be ashamed of or hesitant to tell Anna about later? If the answer is yes, I don't do it. Now, granted, our relationship is such that the things I can tell her about without shame are a pretty wide range. But I'm sharing that in case it's a principle that can help anyone else. Our story this week is sort of about a convention, and about things that can happen there. We present The Sweet Sad Love Song of Fred and Wilma by Nick DiCario and Mike Resnick. Mr. DiCario lives in New York State, and his first novel, A Small and Remarkable Life, was published last year by Robert J. Sawyer Books and nominated for the John W. Campbell Award for Best Novel of the Year. He's also the fiction editor of Hazmat Literary Review and has many short stories in Year's Best and other anthologies. Mike Resnick? Well, if you've listened to Escape Pod, you know Mike Resnick's bio. The two of them have collaborated so often that there's a collection of short stories by the two of them. Magic Feathers, The Mike and Nick Show, available from Obscura Press. This story first appeared in Science Fiction Age in 1994. So register early and wear your badge at all times. It's story time. The Sweet, Sad Love Song of Fred and Wilma by Nick DiCario and Mike Resnick. This is the story of Fred and Wilma and their relationship. And no, it's not the bittersweet tale of two lovers you think it's going to be. Fred, after all, wasn't exactly your Arnold Schwarzenegger type, if you know what I mean. To tell you the truth, he would have needed a year of intensive workouts to bulk up to your run-of-the-mill Martin Short type. Fred was 5 feet 4 inches tall, 
weighed less than a flying nun, wore thick glasses, sported a bald spot he refused to acknowledge, hardly ever smiled because of his buck teeth and poor gums, and favored the disquieting habit of biting his fingernails just when everyone else wanted to eat. Oh, he was bright, all right. The older and mustier the book, the more avidly he sought it out. But he lacked even the simplest social graces. Like, for example, at the office. Very few hairy-chested he-men or lawyers who believe themselves hairy-chested he-men, when gathered around the water cooler on a Monday morning and engaged in wistful reminiscences about the incomparable Sandy Koufax, really wanted to have a skinny little wimp tell them that Koufax's record in 1956 was an unexceptional two wins and four losses with a 4.91 earned run average. Especially a wimp who lived alone and dressed like Fred. How did Fred dress, I hear you ask? Well, Along with polyester jackets and pants that never quite matched and overly starched shirts, he wore white socks every day of his life. Of course, Fred was colorblind, so he figured he was safe with white. But that's the kind of guy Fred was. Safe and white. Fred worked as a corporate attorney at a huge firm that had the good sense never to allow him to meet a client or appear in court, and within these limits he performed satisfactorily. He spent most of his lunch hours alone, daydreaming about being Alan Quartermain, or at least the Scarlet Pimpernel, and most of his evenings alone, sitting in his naugahyde lazy boy chair, browsing through book after book, poem after poem. Sometimes he drank a little too much, and he never ate quite enough, and he could certainly have showered a little more often, but what the hell, nobody's perfect. So there you have him. Frederick Bannister, tripping across the highways and byways of life, stubbing a toe here, bruising an elbow there, spilling this, dropping that, and managing to make it to the halfway point without too many major accomplishments or disasters. And what of Wilma? Interesting name, Wilma. Not in use much these days. I don't know about you, but to me the name conjures up a picture of a pretty face with blue eyes, red hair, a pert, upturned nose, perky breasts, and a remarkable Stone Age figure. That's my Wilma, anyway. Fred's Wilma possessed none of these attributes. Well, you ask, did she at least have a sharp mind with a quick turn of wit? That's really kind of difficult to say. She possessed massive storage capacity, and no fourth-level equation, no matter how complex, was beyond her, but whether she was bright or merely well-programmed is a moot point. Or at least it was in the beginning. Ah, yes, the beginning. Where to begin? The first beginning? The second? The third? Maybe I should begin with the convention. No, no, wait. The phony contest. Because Fred had billed more hours than anyone else for his law firm during the first quarter of the year, he'd won the right to attend what he was told would be the National Convention on Revisions to Overseas Tax Law in sunny Florida. Why not, thought Fred. He had nothing better to do. Just between you and me, Fred should have suspected some clandestine plot. He'd never won anything in his life, and his billing hours for the first quarter of the year had been no more remarkable than any of his other billing quarters. But Fred put as little thought into this as he did most things, so he hopped a flight from New York to Baltimore, and a connecting flight from Baltimore to Orlando, and a connecting taxicab from the airport down International Drive to the Clarion Hotel. When Fred pushed through the revolving doors of the main entrance, he knew that he'd been duped. There were hundreds of men and women dressed like Hanna-Barbera's Barney and Betty and Fred and Wilma and Dino, and the children dressed like Pebbles and Bam-Bam. And if that wasn't enough to tip him off, there was the dead giveaway, 
a huge banner stretched across the lobby that read, Welcome to Bedrock. Just for the hell of it, Fred approached the concierge and said, This hotel wouldn't happen to be hosting the National Convention on Revisions to Overseas Tax Law, would it? The concierge guffawed. When Fred checked into his room, he received a large manila envelope, welcome to the National Flintstones Convention, stuffed with a convention schedule that included such events as Flintstones role-playing games, for either advanced or beginning players, Flintstones sing-alongs, a Flintstones film festival featuring an A-to-Z run of the original cartoon series, short films and documentaries about Hanna-Barbera, the making of the Flintstones, etc., etc., and, of course, the feature film starring John Goodman would be running continuously in room C-112 on the concourse level throughout the entire Flintstones weekend. Fred found that he was officially registered as Fred number 472. A bottle of chilled champagne awaited him in his suite, along with a ticket to the Fred and Wilma Single Soiree, where only singles named Fred and Wilma would be allowed in. Proof of identification, preferably a driver's license, would be required. For those Freds and Wilmas who hit it off and chose to marry, there would be an en masse ceremony on the last day of the convention. Fred, alone in his room, looked out over a humid and rainy Orlando evening. He was moved to smile a smile he did not fully understand. Even Fred had to admire the creativity of a prank of such largesse. He knew he should feel hurt and appalled and betrayed. He should go directly to the airport this very instant and return home and go tell those people at the firm just what he thought of them. But what did he think? He'd have to consider that at some length. The last thing Fred wanted to do was play into the hands of his tormentors. Besides, here he was, not unpleasantly situated in a luxury hotel, away from the office, his first free weekend in how many years? Just ten miles from Disney World although he had no inclination to visit an amusement park of any sort, with nothing to worry about, nothing to do but sit in his room, enjoy the air conditioning, bathe in the hot tub, watch television, read poetry, order room service, and, what the hell, get drunk. So why not enjoy it? After a relaxing bath, Fred ordered a cheeseburger and buffalo-style chicken wings from room service and charged it to his own credit card, not the firm's. When he returned to New York, he didn't want to be accused of abusing his privileges. Fred was already plotting his return, what he would say, how he would react, how to make his colleagues feel that they'd spent a ton of money and hadn't gotten the return they'd anticipated. He clicked on the television. Was there a station that wasn't running the Flintstones? When he couldn't find anything but cartoons and minor league baseball, he thought he'd lean back and close his eyes for just a moment. And that's the position in which he woke up several hours later, with a pounding headache and a pasty mouth and a sick stomach. It was the cleaning mech who woke him, tromping into his suite, her screws and hinges screeching and grating. She was not a pretty sight, all nuts and bolts and tarnished hardware, wearing a bonnet and an apron over an ill-fitted, lacy dress. Fred had forgotten to hang his do-not-disturb sign. Come back later, he barked at her. I'm sorry, but I can't. I'm quitting after my morning rooms. Her jaws eked as she spoke, and she smelled of something metallic and a little bit stale. Fred cringed at her voice, a conglomeration of sopranos and tenors and baritones emanating from something akin to a cement mixer, reminding him of what used to come out of the heat register near the ladies' room of Macy's department store. 
Well, all right, so it eavesdropped once or twice as a boy. Big deal. I've got too much intelligence for this job, she screeched. I've got fourth-level equation capability, and here I am working as a maid. And of course, I'm taking a job away from a first-level mech. And by law, management has to replace me after one year. And they told me only two hours ago that my year was up after today. So I told them the hell with it. I'll do my morning rooms, but then I quit. I'm out of here. Take this job and shove it. She plucked the bonnet off the shiny can that housed her mechanical brain, threw it down on the carpeting, and stomped on it so hard the floor shook. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to dump my problems on you. Fred gingerly crawled out of bed. He and his robe reeked of whiskey. That's all right. I know how you feel. I don't exactly fit in where I work either. I suppose I could just leave the room and report it as a do-not-disturb, and somebody else could come by and clean it up this afternoon. No, just go ahead and do whatever you have to do. I don't care. He went into the bathroom, closed the door behind him, hugged the porcelain toilet, and retched. His head pounded without mercy, but his stomach felt much better. He stepped under a shower and let the cool water pepper his skin until he felt whole again. By the time he finished... His suite was pristine, and the cleaning mech was gone. Yes, you are absolutely correct. Our story most certainly would have ended here if things were left up to Fred. But they weren't. The cleaning mech had taken a liking to Fred. Unlike most humans, he had listened to her, really listened, and it seemed as if he had even understood her. So she came back to Fred's suite that night, carrying a bottle of whiskey. Why not? She no longer worked for the hotel. And it would be so wonderful for her to talk to someone who understood, who sympathized, who listened. Fred seemed like such a sweet, sad guy. He could probably use the companionship. So, later that evening... Hello, Fred. It's me, your cleaning mech. Open the door. Fred had fallen asleep on his bed, with his book of love poetry teepeed on his chest. He woke with a start and swung his legs off the mattress. I'm coming! He yanked open the door. What is it? I thought you quit your job. She pushed past him into the suite. I did. That's exactly why I'm here. I needed to talk to someone. You wouldn't mind talking for a while, would you, Fred number 472? No. Yes. How did you know my name? I looked it up at the registration desk. I also know you are fond of whiskey. She held out a bottle of Jack Daniels. Fred shrugged. He took the bottle and cracked the seal. I noticed you ordered a cheeseburger and chicken wings last night, so I'm having room service deliver the same order in about an hour. Don't worry about the expense. I've already charged it to the hotel. I'm a whiz with computers. Why would you want to talk to me? I certainly can't tell you anything you don't already know. Intelligence is not what I'm looking for. Thanks a heap. Please don't misunderstand. Intelligence in and of itself is merely a tool. Do you know what to do with it? That's the important thing. You wouldn't hand a carpenter a plumber's wrench, would you? I don't know any carpenters, said Fred. You're a plumber, Fred. You know what to do with the wrench. I can tell. I'm a corporate attorney. You're my plumber. She plopped down on the edge of the bed. Fred sighed. Fred sighed a great deal. It was his manner to sigh passively, to accept things the way they were. He missed his calling in life. 
he would have made an excellent prisoner of war. His captors would have said about him, It's too bad we had to kill such a nice fellow like Fred, who never complained about the food or the treatment, but he was of absolutely no use to us. But Fred was of use to the cleaning mech. She talked about her troubled youth, built by Matsushita, the parent company of Panasonic, to be part of a manned NASA mission to Mars, she left Japan with billions of bits of information and a pioneering spirit. Oh yes, that could be programmed too. Only to arrive in the States to discover her mission had been scratched due to lack of funds. So there she stood, an unemployed immigrant mech with no more life experiences than a sheltered adolescent girl. She could have returned to Japan, but she had been programmed to explore so she decided to do exactly that. Could she have done otherwise? She took whatever odd jobs she could find to pay her way, traveled to Maracaibo and Patagonia, but always returned to Florida, just in case NASA was thinking about going to Mars again. I have no perception of the passage of time, she told Fred, after room service had come and gone. Fred had eaten his dinner and killed half a bottle of Jack. That's the way they programmed me. They didn't want me to experience time-induced boredom on my way to Mars. I can tell what time of the day or night it is without any problem, but I was never given a sense of hours or days or years gone by. So whenever a year is up and I get kicked out of another first-level job, I'm always surprised. I guess I overreacted a little bit this morning. I'm sorry, Fred. Don't apologize. Fred reeled from the alcohol. He wondered if he was going to get a chance to talk. But no, he wasn't, at least not on their first night together. She picked up Fred's book. Oh, Fred, poetry. I adore poetry. She flipped through the pages. Only later did Fred learn she had read the entire collection in 4.27 seconds. She closed the book and held it to her canister. Keats, she cooed wistfully, like a mechanical pigeon. I cry your mercy, pity, love, I love, merciful love that tantalizes not, one-thoughted, never-wandering, guileless love, unmasked and being seen without a blot. Oh, let me have thee whole, all, all be mine, that shape, that fairness, that sweet minor zest of love, your kiss, those hands, those eyes divine. Ah, the beauty of a seduction something about which neither Fred nor the cleaning mech had even minimal knowledge, is in its spontaneity, when the moment presents itself like Andrew Marvel's coy lover, unexpectedly, uncertainly, unspoiled. Fred gazed upon the mech. The dim lights glinted off her colorless body. He was colorblind, of course, but there was a bright purity to her tinnish frame that drew him in like the light at the end of a tunnel. He gulped. "'What's your name?' he asked her. FLI 8-8-411. No, that certainly would not do. Fred could hear the music coming from the ballroom one floor below him, from the soiree he would not be attending, the theme song to the Flintstones. He thought about the chance he'd taken by staying in Orlando when he should have gone home, and how good taking that chance felt, and he thought about taking another chance, and maybe another. And then, in the aftermath of a brief insight bordering on creativity, Fred said, No, you adorable creature. Your name is not FLI 818 whatever. Your name is Wilma. My Wilma. He stepped toward the bed. Wait. Before I go any further, I have to tell you about Fred's flashback. 
Roberta. Years and years ago. It happened at Fred's third or fourth foster home, a time in his life when his only friend had been a three-legged shaggy mongrel named L.L. Cool J, whose hind leg had been blasted off in a drive-by shooting. Fred, an awkward 15-year-old, had never even kissed a girl, but he was at that stage when everything about a woman was cloaked in erotic mystery. Come to think of it, Fred still found everything about women cloaked in erotic mystery. Anyway, he remembered walking into his bedroom one day after school, and lying naked in bed was the fat Spanish woman who ran the household, a jolly, smooth-skinned behemoth, forty-some-odd years old. She smiled her gap-toothed smile at him. Nobody else is home. Come here. She threw the covers aside. Fred's innocent young mind froze. At that moment, she might have been the ugliest woman in the world, but Fred never would have known it. All he recognized were female body parts, to which, quite literally, he'd never been exposed. I, I don't know what to do, he stammered. Take off your clothes, she said, giggling. He did, although even to this day, he couldn't recall undressing. The next thing he knew, he was in bed with Roberta. Fred was so excited he could have burst. And burst he did, a bit sooner than expected. Roberta laughed and laughed. He was so humiliated he ran out of the bedroom naked. When he ran back in for his clothes, Roberta was still wheezing with laughter. He ran away and was eventually placed in another foster home. But that awful memory, that horrid experience, stayed with him forever, and it kept him from ever getting close to another woman. So Fred froze in front of Wilma, mired in flashback. And what about Wilma? What could she possibly be feeling at this odd moment in unperceived time? Wait a minute, you say. Wilma was a robot. She couldn't possibly be feeling anything. Well, how do you know that? Just as there was no way for Wilma to know what a human was feeling, how could you or any other human being know what was coursing through the brain of a fourth-level intelligence? All right, fine, I hear you say. But any idiot knows a mech wasn't built for sexual intercourse. What could Fred possibly be thinking? Well, Fred was lit on Jack and feeling sorry for himself and horny as hell, but let's not forget his flashback. He was actually relieved Wilma was not built for intercourse. In fact, that realization was exactly what freed him, what allowed him to take that giant step past Roberta he'd never been able to take before. Wilma could in no way threaten him with the dark mystery of her sex. Or so he thought. Fred calmly undressed in front of her and climbed into bed. Wilma turned toward him. They held each other. To Wilma's receptor plates, Fred felt cold and clammy. She had never been this close to a human before, and her fourth-level intelligence immediately went to work digesting the information and calculating implications and formulating response patterns adherent to the situation. Don't forget, Wilma was programmed to explore and assimilate. To Fred, Wilma felt warm and firm, not at all like he'd expected. He'd braced himself for something cold and mechanical, and was surprised to discover how well he fit in between the lines of Wilma's ribbed torso. He pressed himself up against her. They began to move slowly in rhythm together. She whispered poetry to him. Robert Graves. Oh, love, be fed with apples while you may, and feel the sun and go in royal array, a smiling innocent on the heavenly causeway. Thomas More. Twas a new feeling, something more than we had dared to own before. 
Fred straddled Wilma, gripped her hot metal between his thighs, and his sweat gathered in the crevices of her body. A.D. Hope. Now the heart sings with all its thousand voices to hear the city of cells my body sing. The tree through the stiff clay at long last forces its thin strong roots and taps the secret spring. From the soiree one floor below, Flintstones, meet the Flintstones, they're a modern Stone Age family. Back to Wilma quoting E.E. E. Cummings. I like my body when it is with your body. It is so quite new a thing. Muscles better and nerves more. I like your body. I like what it does. I like its hows. I like to feel the spine of your body and its bones, and the trembling firm smoothness, and which I will again and again and again. And this last, dear friends, is exactly how our Wilma felt. Is that really so difficult to believe? When it was over, Fred lay sprawled atop her silver iridescence. He recited to Wilma a hairy fane light. In bed with a stranger who had picked him up, he lies awake in the dark. How calmly happy he is feeling. And then he fell asleep. All right, I'm going to summarize some events for you now. Wilma, not exactly sure what she and Fred had shared, knew only that she wanted to share it again and again. Fred, knowing precisely what he and Wilma had shared, knew only that he wanted to share it again and again. So he offered her a job. Wilma, come back to New York with me and be my personal secretary and run my household. Hell, do whatever you damn well please, as long as we're together. Wilma, only too happy to accept, said, Oh, yes, Fred, yes, yes, yes. So Fred bought Wilma one-way airfare to New York, and thus the beginning of yet another beginning began. Fred called the firm and tacked a couple of additional weeks' vacation onto his Florida trip and spent most of his time with Wilma in his small brownstone. They shared a great deal of quality time together, the kind of time they'd shared in Florida, love and poetry, poetry and love, reminiscences about each other's past. Fred even told Wilma about Roberta. He'd never mentioned her to anyone in his entire life. And Wilma, being far more intelligent and energetic than Fred, actually, she didn't require any rest whatsoever, went about hooking herself into every nook and cranny of Fred's home. She linked to Fred's malfunctioning home-regulating computer and took over control of his environment, his plumbing, his gas, and electric. She became his live-in maid, prepared his meals, warmed his coffee, watered his plants, emptied his garbage, balanced his checkbook, and paid his bills. She even helped him select some new socks. Wilma was not colorblind, along with new shirts and ties and suits to update his pathetic wardrobe. She got him an appointment with the dentist, from which he emerged with a new set of bright white choppers and healthy pink gums, a simple office surgical procedure he'd never bothered to schedule. She sent him to the ophthalmologist, where the doctor replaced his beat-up old glasses with a selection of turquoise and emerald and crimson contact lenses. She took him to the dermatologist, where his pimply facial skin was stripped with lasers and made healthy and clean with smooth, permanent applications. He had his bald spot covered with natural hair spikes that would continue to grow and multiply. In return, Fred took Wilma to a body shop. Sparing no expense, he had her flushed, sprayed, oiled, and polished, getting rid of that stale metallic odor and replacing it with a fragrance reminiscent of rose petals. He had her old parts replaced and bought her a new voice, something soft and silky and sexy. 
At the end of two weeks, Wilma was a sparkling piece of neoclassical machinery. Fred's house was an immaculate tropical paradise, and Fred dressed and felt and looked like a new man, a fresh, smart lawyer in the prime of his career. And it was this Fred, this new man, who returned to work the following week and turned the firm on its ear. Many of Fred's colleagues didn't recognize him at first, but when they did, he became the talk of the office. Was their cruel little prank in some way responsible for his metamorphosis? What had happened in Florida? They all wanted to know, but none of them had the guts to come out and ask him. It wouldn't have mattered. Fred wasn't talking. He hit his client list like a man batting against Koufax in 56, wiping out his backlog and outstanding case research in a matter of days, and then helping out some of the partners with their bigger money accounts. Of course, he had Wilma to help. She could do more work in the time it took him to eat dinner than he could manage in a full week. Without any effort at all, he'd quadrupled his billings. Fred smiled a lot and even talked about current events at the water cooler. Films, theater, foreign and domestic affairs, sports, interesting court cases taking place in obscure locations all over the globe. He became a fountain of information. Wilma had hitched into Fred's office lap link and fed him information all day long, whenever and whatever he wanted. After a short time, the firm allowed him to see clients and even appear in court. How could they stop him? They couldn't afford to lose him now. Before the year was out, Fred became a partner and discovered that partners had much less work to do than anybody else. He talked on the phone a lot. He was good at calming down stressed-out clients. Don't worry, I'll have so-and-so check into it. Fear not, I'll call whomever and set up a meeting. No problem, give me a day or two and it'll be taken care of. And, inevitably, it was. But who could have anticipated Miss Crummers? Well, actually, anyone with half a lick of common sense, that's who. So, despite the inevitability of Miss Crummers, our lovers were caught completely unaware. Miss Crummers, a natural redhead, taut and slim and young and tanned, with the body of a goddess and a face of beauty and character, in complete contrast to her soul, I might add, had been the talk of the executive water cooler for months. I see Miss Crummers came to your office this morning. Reynolds, a senior partner, nudged Fred and winked. The comings and goings of Miss Crummers were closely monitored by all the partners. Oh, yes, said Fred. She was delivering a Federal Express parcel. The senior partners chuckled. And has she ever hand-delivered a FedEx to your office before? No, Fred blushed. More chuckles. She's marked you, said Davenport. Pretty soon she'll be asking you to call her you-know-what. What? said Fred, puzzled. What shall I call her? The others laughed and nudged and winked some more. You'll see. Miss Crummers made several more appearances in Fred's office that week. Mail, phone messages, a cup of coffee, Mr. Bannister? And finally, on Friday afternoon, Oh, Mr. Bannister, I'm so hungry, and look what time it is. How about a late lunch? Well, you couldn't exactly call Fred an innocent. He'd been warned. But what was a little lunch, even if it was almost dinner time and Wilma was preparing duck a l'orange? It had been ages since he'd been out with a real woman. All right, so he'd never been out with a real woman. Wasn't Wilma enough of a woman for him? Come to think of it, could he categorize Wilma as a woman at all, even in a robotic sense? 
Could she be gender-defined by any other means than his own perception? Regardless, it's not as if they could be seen in public together. He was certain that having a relationship with a machine, even a machine with fourth-level intelligence and a knack for cooking Cherry's Jubilee, would be frowned upon by the firm. More to the point, if he came out of the closet with their affair, everyone would know who was really responsible for his success. He'd never had an image to protect before. He knew that a man of his good looks and good fortune and charm, who wasn't seen with a woman now and again, might be considered, well, gay. He certainly didn't want that. There were so many good reasons for him to go to lunch with Miss Crummers that Fred couldn't have possibly declined. Allow me to quickly summarize the late lunch. Fred and Miss Crummers went to an elegant hotel restaurant frequented by many upscale lawyers. Fred accompanied the most gorgeous woman in a room full of gorgeous women. Everyone seemed to know her. Good afternoon, Miss Crummers. Good to see you again, Miss Crummers. The usual Miss Crummers. Fred felt as nervous as that one time he'd gotten a barium enema, and just about as tight. Like the old Fred, he ate too little and drank too much, still couldn't relax, and then drank some more. At one point, he turned to her and said, The other partners told me you have a nickname. What is it? She smiled. Oh, Freddy, that's confidential information. You'll have to earn it. <laughs> After lunch, and a few more drinks at the bar, and a lot of giggling and touching, hands on shoulders, legs brushing knees, breasts sweeping arms, Miss Crummer said, Have you ever seen one of these? She pulled something out of her purse that looked like a key card. Why, no, said Fred. How had his hand found Miss Crummer's thigh? It's the key to the corporate suite. Come on, I'll show you. No harm in that, thought Fred. Up to the 28th floor they went. Well, now, let's not judge our Fred too harshly. You see, he discovered several things about himself as he lay under the silk sheets of a king-sized waterbed and watched Miss Crummer slowly disrobe under the soft glow of dim red lights in front of a heart-shaped hot tub while classical music played in the background and the smell of exotic incense dulled his senses and all the accoutrements of the corporate suite beckoned him to be a very bad little boy. First of all, he learned that he had not changed one bit. Oh yes, Fred was a new man. He looked new, he acted with a new sense of self-reliance, he even felt new. But the simple facts remained unchanged. Inside, Fred was still a bit of a dolt, lacking sexual experience with human females, who still believed in the erotic mystery of women. The steps he'd taken to improve himself, the successes he'd enjoyed at the firm, were not his own. They belonged to Wilma. True, he had taken some chances, but he hadn't changed. Normally, this insight might have been a bitter pill to swallow, but the alcohol had numbed the foul taste of it, and the vicious beauty of the naked redhead in front of him offered Fred the perfect opportunity to bury his inadequacies deep within the dark pitch of her exquisitely sculpted anatomy. Fred learned something else about himself in that moment. Fred learned that he was weak, and that he stood as a living, breathing example of one thing and one thing only. The nobody's perfect theory of life. He allowed Miss Crummers to join him in bed. As you might expect, Miss Crummers felt much different from Wilma. Soft and supple. If he closed his eyes, despite her remarkable beauty, he was reminded of Roberta, 
so he kept his eyes open for a few shallow, trying breaths. Miss Crummer squirmed a lot. She smelled of alcohol and harsh perfume and unsavory sweat. She did not whisper poetry. That's right, Freddy, she said. You can do it, just like all the others. Come on now, in a hurry-up tone of voice. Wilma never sounded as, well, as if she was in such a rush to get it over with. Miss Crummer's detachment struck Fred as odd. She had been so much fun, so enticing and alluring all evening, only to suddenly become mechanical. Wilma may have been unavoidably robotic, but she was never mechanical. By the time Fred and Miss Crummers finished, an end that came all too quickly as far as Fred was concerned, he felt as if their struggles between the sheets had been nothing more than a wrestling match, him trying to pin her and her deftly maneuvering around him, right then left, left then right, avoiding serious entanglement until his three minutes were up. When he tried to cuddle with Miss Crummers afterward, she rolled out of bed and went into the bathroom and turned on the shower. Wilma always stayed with him until he fell asleep. So Fred lay in bed, wondering what had actually transpired between him and Miss Crummers, what delicate exchanges he had missed, or perhaps even touched off, sensing, but in no way understanding, the complexities of human relationships and the vast array of ulterior motives that might accompany the sex act when dealing with the organic brain. The love relationship he had forged with Wilma wasn't anything at all so complicated. No, quite the contrary. It had come so easily that he hadn't realized its uniqueness, or its value. Miss Crummers came out of the bathroom a few minutes later, with a towel wrapped around her dripping wet body. She dabbed at her face and hair with another towel. "'You can leave any time,' she said. "'Oh,' said Fred. "'Unless you want more.' Her voice sounded flat and a little irritated. "'Once is usually enough for men your age. Besides, I'd have to bill you extra.' Bill me? Yes, Freddy. I'm the only person in the firm worth more money per hour than the senior partners. Fred didn't know what to say. Um, well, actually, I think I've had enough. Very good. I'll withdraw my fee directly from your bank account. She took Fred's bank card out of his wallet without asking, sat at a small desk in front of a portable computer, made a few entries, then came over and sat on the edge of the bed with her back to him. Welcome to the boys' club. From now on, you can call me Crummy. When Fred finally got home, Wilma was gone. There was only one light on in the house, the light in his den. A message awaited him on the computer. Oh, Fred, did you think I wouldn't know? Do you have any idea how many online messages your partners have been sending back and forth? Fred's about to join the club. Tonight's the big night. Freddy and Crummy. I just never dreamed you would go through with it. I kept thinking, he'll come home to me any minute now. He'll come walking through that door. But you didn't, Fred. You didn't. And then, when I saw the funds deducted from your bank account... And then a stanza from one of John Dryden's poems. Farewell, ungrateful traitor. Farewell, my perjured swain. Let never injured creature believe a man again. The pleasure of possessing surpassing all expressing but tis too short a blessing and love too long a pain oh fred how could you after all the things we've shared after all the time we've spent together 
It seems like forever, and yet it has ended so soon. Goodbye. How could he? He didn't know how he could. How was a human being to explain such things? Perhaps, in some insensitive corner of his mind, he thought Wilma incapable of feeling the sting of betrayal. After all, she was comprised of hardware. Perhaps he had needed to touch something human, or had needed something human to touch him, even if he knew that he would be soiled by it. Or perhaps, after all this time, he'd needed to lose something worth losing in order to change his life. For, dear reader, in that quiet moment alone with his computer, Fred realized he would sacrifice his home, his career, his world, his very life, if it meant just one more moment with Wilma. And that mere thought, more than anything else Fred had ever experienced, made him take a step on his own to become a better man. He quickly tossed off his expensive suit and hopped in the shower to wash off every last bit of Miss Crummer's. Wilma would probably be on her way to Florida to see if she could catch a flight to Mars. She couldn't have gotten too much of a head start. He dressed in his old clothes, some ugly pants and a polyester jacket and white socks, the clothes he'd worn when Wilma had fallen in love with him. Change, he finally realized. Real change would have to come from within, not from without. In a matter of minutes, Fred was off to the airport. And that was our story. I don't think Tacharyo and Resnick ever followed it up. I'm actually hoping for the sequel, where he has to follow her on the next flight to Mars to catch up with her. Alright, so, feedback on Escape Pod 123, Niels Bohr and the Sleeping Dane, by Jonathan Sullivan. I'll try to be brief, although there were a lot of comments. Most people loved it for the emotional resonance, particularly the father-son dynamic. As Aetherius said... It's a strong story, with good characters, cool ideas, a very tasty blend of science and mysticism, and undeniable emotional impact. Earl Newton sent me a text message to my phone to tell me the story affected him very deeply. A couple of people admitted to crying. We did get some criticism about the plot. Interestingly, several people thought it was too fantastic, and that it might have worked better if the magic had stayed subtle and there were no giant golems lopping heads off. Digital VG pointed out that plot had been used before in a radio drama called The Golem, and a few others also thought Golems vs. Nazis was a bit cliché. Whatever you thought, thanks for your feedback, and particular thanks to those who told me that my Danish pronunciation wasn't bad, but my Yiddish pronunciation was. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated, and is distributed on a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. All other rights are reserved by our authors. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a friend or blog about us. And if you can, please consider donating via the PayPal link at escapepod.org. You can also check out our horror podcast, Pseudopod, at pseudopod.org, our soon-to-be-released fantasy podcast at podcastle.org, and by archive CDs at poddisc.com. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes from Carol Kapek from his play Rossum's Universal Robots, which is where the word robot was coined. He wrote, Nothing is stranger to man than his own image. We'll see you next week. Until then, have fun.